Hi, I'm Larry Gifford. I have Parkinson's disease. This is a special Parkinson's Awareness Month episode of When Life Gives You Parkinson's. We officially award-winning podcast when life gives you Parkinson's. Oh, yeah! <laughs> Honored as best podcast by the RTDNA Canada West Region. We now face off with two other podcasts, both produced by the CBC, Canada's NPR, or uh, BBC. Uh, so uh, we are going for best podcast in Canada, so wish us luck. Each Wednesday in April, we will be releasing an episode featuring new interviews and never-before-heard bits of interviews that I've collected over the past two seasons, from people with Parkinson's and their advocacy to the leaders of the Parkinson's organizations around the world that we're counting on to support us in our journey and to help drive research for new treatment options. Today, we're going to hear from three people. Helen Matthews, Deputy CEO of the Cure Parkinson's Trust, Steve Ford, the Chief Executive of Parkinson's UK, and Sohini Chowdhury, the Deputy CEO of the Michael J. Fox Foundation. Three people and three organizations making a huge impact in the world of Parkinson's. These are the keepers of hope, the difference makers, the believers. They know that you can lead a great life today with Parkinson's and that tomorrow, no matter how far in the future that may be, we can all live lives without Parkinson's. I talked with Helen Matthews, the deputy CEO of the Cure Parkinson's Trust back in February before COVID-19 had taken over our lives. The first thing I did was thank Helen. Personally, the more that I learn about Cure Parkinson's Trust, the more I appreciate what they do for people with Parkinson's like me. Well, Larry, do know that our objective is to try and find a cure. And for us, that means looking at absolutely every avenue of research that we can and move as many forward that are as promising as possible in parallel. Um, so it means that we are a very, very small team here, but we are um, absolutely committed to finding a cure. And I think because we were set up by people with Parkinson's, it, it for us, that is a, a very important torch to carry. The Cure Parkinson's Trust... CPT, is 15 years old in 2020, co-founded by the late great Parkinson's advocate Tom Isaacs. I've done all I can to find this cure. We've created a, a different feeling, a different culture, a different mood about Parkinson's, and, and that's actually what I'm most proud about. And it uh, seems a shame that that I'm, I'm the one who is lost out on this, but uh, hopefully the legacy will, will um, but hopefully I will have less something good. And hopefully out of my demise might come something that might be more powerful than, than, uh, than if, I, if I live through it. <laughs> Tom Isaacs died in May of 2017. Those words are his from a film by BBC documentary producer Jemima Harrison of The Passionate Productions entitled Tom in His Own Words, which focuses on Tom's extraordinary legacy. Helen was at his side and there from the beginning of the Cure Parkinson's Trust and a little bit before. CPT came into being in 2005 um, and for us, 
it was a matter of we wanted to make sure that all avenues of research could move forward because as the GDF trials had been halted, you know, so similarly, Big Pharma was starting to leave the area of uh, the arena of Parkinson's. And, and with that, you know, the, the onward investment to actually make treatments a real thing for people. It's all very well having academic research that moves things forward. But but unless you have got a partner that can actually manufacture and deliver and take things forward to clinics, you've reached another another blockade. Um, so for us, it was making sure that we could really help support the effort, the fantastic work that the Michael J. Fox Foundation were doing in the US, but try and, and build a similar effort to support the research that was going on in Europe um, and in the US. So support support the best research wherever we could find it. Sure. And I have to say, when we came into being, you know, the charity was set up by four individuals with Parkinson's. I'd been involved since 2002, but our, our vision was pretty clear. Let's, let's try and find as many different routes as we can to find treatments that are going to slow down the disease, stop it or reverse it. Also, we make sure that all areas of research move forward in parallel so that we, you know, we do try and explore the small molecules, that we do try and explore the gene therapy, that we do make sure that we're really focusing on on the repurposing that we do so much of here at CPT in terms of, you know, cough and diabetes treatments and high cholesterol treatments, you know, making sure that we're moving everything forward because because we know that Parkinson's is a syndrome, not one disease, we have got to identify treatments for all sorts of Parkinson's. The name Cure Parkinson's Trust, is it too audacious? Uh, I think you have to hold on to your aspirations, don't you, Larry? Oh, I really yeah, yeah. Got I have to believe very, very strongly in Tom's vision. You know, Tom believed in that a cure for Parkinson's was possible and is possible, and I believe it too. And I have to say, I'm incredibly encouraged by the work that's been going on here, um, you know, particularly within our repurposing program, our link clinical trials in terms of exenatide, in terms of ambroxol, um, and then there are a whole pipeline of, of other drugs that are coming through as well, making sure we move all of those forward so that we're not completely reliant on a surgical route is is massively important. Surgery is not right for everybody, and we have to hold on to that. How is the trust defining the word cure these days? Well, I, for me personally, I still follow Tom's definition of that, is that cure means different things to different people at different stages of the disease. You know, if you're newly diagnosed, you don't ever want to have had that di diagnosis. If you've been living with Parkinson's for 10, 12, 15 years, uh, you don't want anybody else to ever get that diagnosis, but you are in a in a different mindset and, and uh, perhaps more ready to... to uh, take part in in research in a philanthropic way um, because your 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 involvement will make a difference for future generations with Parkinson's as well as to yourself. And, and uh, how much closer to a cure are we today than when Tom founded the trust? I I think if I had Richard Wise around the table opposite me, he he would be going. I want to answer that one. I want to answer that one. <laughs> <laughs> um, I I think we're an awful lot closer, definitely in terms of having um, treatments that will slow down the progression, and that is a massive step forward. Uh, which which means that you know the stem cell work, um, growth factor work, other work can be ca carrying on in parallel um, that might be a little bit slower to come all the way through to clinic, but there are things that that are coming very very soon that we hope will, will actually slow down the progression of Parkinson's. The Cure Parkinson's Trust is a big supporter of the GDNF trials, also known as the Bristol Trials. I initially talked to Helen for an episode about GDNF, which was released on March 18th, 2020, called This Might Be the Closest Thing to a Cure. 
There's a lot of specific information around GDNF in that episode. We dive into it a little bit here, but it's a more general discussion around the outcomes of scientific studies and are we measuring the right things. So in the Bristol trial, the phase two trial, uh, the it failed to meet its primary point, but the trust uh, almost immediately pointed to the brain imaging and said, wait a minute, there's something else going on here. What was going on? Well, and I think that that's the thing that's really interesting is that the, the we could clearly see that there was some form of biological engagement here. Um, and I think that that's what's given us uh, a sense that there is a, there is more research that needs to happen. And Larry, I think I think when the initial results came out, you know, it was it was hugely disappointing. But again, it's trying to understand why. What is the disconnect? And taking the time to get that right and move forward in the right way is a really, really important thing. Um, you know, it, it's very easy to rush forward and not necessarily take on board the considerations or the new developments and make make sure that whatever the next step is, is as strong as it can possibly be. And it's really, really encouraging to see that CDNF, that's been moving forward in parallel and has had really encouraging results in terms of it's it's got safety and tolerability data that is available and the full data will be available later on this year. So, uh, and that's been a trial that's been supported by Herantis Pharma, but it's using the same delivery device that was used in Bristol. Um, but in parallel, also, the gene therapy trials are coming back. And, and actually, that is a really important step because the, the current infusion route that's been used in the Bristol trial of, of needing to go for an infusion once a month is very, very onerous for people. And it won't necessarily be the right thing for everybody. So it's really important that when you're looking at an area of research, you open up as many doors as you possibly can within that field so that you can try and, and support, hopefully, a, you know, a small molecule that would be a pill eventually that, or a, a subcutaneous uh, injection that, that would be so much easier and, and much more um, feasible for people to be able to take and to administer than, than needing to go through brain surgery and monthly infusions. Are there other out outcome measurements that indicated GDNF still had merit? So the outcomes in Parkinson's research and particularly in, in clinical trials are a really important area and there's a lot that's going on here as well. And again, it might not be immediately apparent that there's a lot of work that's going on in this, but there really is. Um, I think we have all felt for a very long time, not only those who are funding research, but also those who are taking part in research and also those who are carrying out the research, that we're missing a trick here. You know, clinical trials don't just happen when people come into clinic. There is that 24-7 when people are at home living with a condition and taking part in a clinical trial where data could be collected. And thankfully, you know, the technology is now catching up with this rather important idea that we needed to be measuring in a different way. And we are working very, very hard with, hard with a number of groups to try and identify ways that Parkinson's can be measured effectively at home. Now, it's very easy to put on a device and assume that you're measuring Parkinson's. The critical thing is to make sure that the algorithm that are used to um, overlay the data that's collected are actually measuring Parkinson's. There's a most fantastic uh, researcher in Kiel in Germany called Walter Meitzler, and his vision for creating algorithms is to work with a clinician, 
an individual with Parkinson's and with an algorithm developer. And so everybody agrees that what you're measuring is Parkinson's rather than being movement. Wow. Okay. That's cool. It's, it's really important. And there's a wonderful project that's also just starting to get underway in Bristol, um, again, very much being led by the team who, who were leading GDNF, uh, to try and, let me take it back a step, there's a smart house in Bristol, a house that's filled with sensors. And what they are going to be doing is inviting um, some selected participants to come into the house and then wear additional sensors on top of that to be able to put somebody's movement and their daily activities within the context of a home environment. Now, that is really massively important because if you know that somebody is preparing a meal, you would expect to see certain patterns uh, of movement. Uh, and being able to correlate somebody's patterns of movement with Parkinson's with somebody who doesn't have Parkinson's and, and compare the two suddenly becomes incredibly powerful. So you're getting a very accurate picture of what somebody's doing and what that pattern of Parkinson's is looking like at that moment. Now, the plan for that for this is that this will be a pilot study and we will be inviting people to come into the house and and to you know to live in the house for a while so that we can actually collect that data um, and then actually develop the really accurate map of what we're looking at but that will then inform developing sensors that can be used at home which then means that we've got that 24/7 measurement system well I think that's really important Helen because like you, you talk about Parkinson's versus movement it's not just a movement disorder uh, and, and if you would watch me and my wife at home cooking dinner I'm, I'm a lot different at the end of a long day uh, where I'm trying to be on at work and then I come home and I let my guard down and I forget to season the chicken when I'm cooking I mean like <laughs> yeah. I mean it's, it's, it's different. It, it, exactly. It's it's really, really important that, you know, people have to, people are living. People have got things they've got to do. They've got to walk the dog. You know, they've got to put in a load of washing. They've got to do the normal routine that we all do. But actually, you know, understanding how Parkinson's is, is uh, impacting or not a, an individual, and particularly when they're going through a clinical trial, that is, is massively important information to collect. And I think the other thing that I feel really passionately about is making sure that we learn from those who are living with those who are living with Parkinson's through the clinical trial experience. I think we have an opportunity to really talk to, to the loved ones, the family members, the partners, the spouses uh, who are living with people who are going through a clinical trial. They go through it too, but actually their observations are massively important. And that, that this is a change in the way that research has been done traditionally, where the patient and the caregivers weren't really involved in creating the trials or even considered beyond just measuring movement. I think that's right. I think, you know, the, the era of people taking part in a clinical trial and being a subject uh, is very different to being a participant in a clinical trial. And, and the language is really important, actually, because you are a participant, you are contributing, you're contributing on every level. And, you know, it's it's a long process and it's an important process. And to take part in a clinical trial takes a great deal of commitment. It takes a great deal of thought. Um, you know, it takes a great deal of effort. And and that effort, we will never find new, tra new treatments unless people are fantastic enough to put themselves forward and to take part, but to, to know that they are part of something very important. Yeah, it, it's, you know, it's, I, I actually had a question, how important is the patient voice in research and trials today? I think that this is something that's growing in importance, Larry. I think 
it's something that Tom always championed. Absolutely, he did. That's why we have the Tom Isaacs Award, which is to celebrate a researcher who really embraces patient involvement in in their work um, and actually really listens and takes inspiration from people living with the with the condition because that is is vital, absolutely vital. It's it, it changes everything. It. Um, I think researchers understand whether a project's doable or not for the first time when they actually start to talk to the individuals who might take part. It's much, much more than that, though. It's understanding if the research idea is relevant in the first place. Yeah, and you know, it's you talk about the, you know the change in the environment of of inclusion of patients and and the re, how the research is changing, and I think the the GDNFers that are really passionate that are still very vocal and are raising money for the research. I mean, they, these people are changing the way science is done. At least part, you know, they, they're at least partway responsible for it. And, and I know you and the, the Parkinson's UK group are working with them now on uh, on whatever's next for GD, GDNF. And, and do you have a vision for how that's going to roll out? I think it's still a little bit early to say, Larry. I think, um, you know, there are, there are a number of, of moving parts. I think I'm really encouraged by um, the, the work that's going on with the outcomes. I think that that's a critical matter. I think I'm really encouraged by, you know, the, the, particularly the results that have been going out around with um, with the uh, BT13 results that Parkinson's UK had this week, last week, um, and the Horantis findings this week. You know, I think, again, it's making sure that we move forward in the right way rather than necessarily rushing ahead and, and not getting it right. BT13, I think we need to talk about this because this, for me, I read that and I went, whoa, this is this could be a game changer. Again, and this this is coming back to the small molecule idea that, you know, this is a growth factor. It's how do you get it, you know, if you can get something in without doing surgery, then that's brilliant. But I think, again, growth factors that, that by their very nature, they are there to stimulate growth. And it's it's controlling those that is always going to be the question. Yeah, and BT13 is, uh, you know, has the same neuroprotective effects as GDNF, but will be easier to get past the blood-brain barrier, which is really ideal because it's, then you have less invasive surgeries, right? Precisely that. Exactly that. Helen, is there anything else you want to add? I, the one thing I would want to say is actually, you know, a cure can't come soon enough. I've been involved with the Cure Parkinson's Trust since its inception, which is 15 years this year. Um, I've seen a real evolution in research, and it is so encouraging to see so much activity going on um, and the energy and the enthusiasm and the dedication of people working in research from all fields and by that I mean participants I mean people who are guiding research from a participant perspective so um, you know there are fantastic Parkinson's advocates who do exactly that and do a phenomenal job an absolutely phenomenal job I'm constantly in awe of them uh, to to people who are prepared to fund this work and and that's high risk as well you know it it's and then the dedicated researchers who are carrying it out and quite often researchers are doing this in on top of the day job you mm -hmm. know they are not remunerated to the extent to which the research needs it. And actually, for there to be a game changer, Parkinson's needs to be a global health priority recognised by governments globally 
who are properly investing in this. We've seen this happen in Australia with a, 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 an injection of cash into a Parkinson's program. You know, we need further injections of cash here in the UK. We need further injections of cash in Canada. We need consortiums working in all territories, you know, in North America, really investing and making sure that Parkinson's is a health priority. That's great. Well, I, I you, know, you obviously are uh, carrying the torch that Tom lit, and it's amazing. I mean, I just... I just uh, I marvel at what you guys are doing every day and um, you know very grateful for it. Well, thank you and thank you for giving me the opportunity to talk. But do know that we really care passionately about moving things forward. You know, for us this is about carrying on Tom's torch. It is about um, keeping Tom's vision alive. A, a, a cure is possible and we will get there. With Helen on our side, how can we possibly fail? Another great champion of people with Parkinson's and a regular collaborator with Helen and Cure Parkinson's Trust is Parkinson's UK and its chief executive, Steve Ford. Steve and I both chatted in February 2020. He's been with Parkinson's UK since 2005. He is the driving force behind transforming this dynamic organization, both strategically and culturally. This year, Parkinson's UK celebrates 50 years in operation. I don't imagine they wish they were here 50 years later. No, I mean, I think that's a funny word, um, celebrate. And, and we, we have an event this, this, this week where I, I was saying, yeah, it, it is, you know, when, when you had a vision of volunteers who, who sat around a kitchen table 50 years ago saying, hey, we've got to do something about Parkinson's. And, you know, there was no support and no information and no research going on. I, I guess those people would say, well, it's great that we've now got 350 nurses in the UK and we're spending eight million um, pounds on, on, on research. And, and, you know, we've got all of these sort of groups. That, yeah, there's all this information that's out there. Yes. You know, I think there is a lot to, to celebrate this, to celebrate the way so much of that has been driven by fantastic, amazing volunteers, leaders from within the Parkinson's community. But yeah, you're right. No one is in the mood to celebrate that. Um, We've still got the same, effectively, we've still got the same drug that was just coming into the clinic 50 years ago. Um, And yeah, that's not good enough. You say uh, the Parkinson's UK is a charity that exists to find a cure and better treatments for Parkinson's, and we will leave no stone unturned until we reach our goal how does Parkinson's UK now define the word cure? Yeah, that's a, that's a tough philosophical um, question, actually. And, and people look at it in, in, in different ways. But I think, you know, we are talking about disease modifying um, treatments that, that can slow, stop or reverse um, the progression of, of Parkinson's. That's what we um, mean. But at the same time, we do recognize that um that actually symptomatic treatments are really important as part of of that that if we can eliminate the consequences of um of the the really kind of challenging symptoms that people face that that is that is significant um the implications of 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 that are, are really significant for 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 people, so you know, I, I I don't think we spend a lot of time really mapping out um, a precise definition of that that would be agreed by everybody. Um, it's tough, but, but that's but that's the kind of sense that we're we're talking about. You know, really significant treatments that change the trajectory of of the condition. And, and to your point about symptomatic relief, if we could figure out a way to cure dyskinesia, 
I think a lot of people would be really happy. Well, look at the press release on Monday. Oh, look at you. Like that's, <laughs> that's a broadcast tease if I've ever heard one. Oh, that next Monday, the organization unveiled exciting research around a potential treatment for dyskinesia. Hello. 50% or so of people with Parkinson's develop dyskinesia or uncontrolled body movements within five years of beginning to take levodopa. That's the gold standard treatment for this lovely disease, which itself is 50 years old. Steve and I continued our chat talking about the organization's unique proposition. Well, I, th- I think that the one thing I think that which really kind of perhaps differentiates Parkinson's UK from lots of other organizations is that, you know, research is really important, but so is that kind of day-to-day support for, for, for people and, um, you know, that we, we invest more than we do in research in making sure that people feel supported to live well with the condition making sure that people have got the information that they they need that they've got the advocacy they need they've got people to to fight to ensure they can access the right financial benefits and 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 all of that and i think people often say to me is that are you trying to do too much should you focus on one or or the other my sense here though is that our research our research programs are better because of that kind of involvement of the community and really understanding what the kind of priorities of, 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 of people are. The fact that when we do um, look to recruit to clinical trials, we've got these networks of, of people, we've got um, communities out there who, who can be engaged in, in, in all of this and, and get involved in, in signing up to clinical trials and shaping clinical trials and, 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 and all of that. So I think it's a, it's, it's a really powerful model. You know, l- last week, um, it, a bizarre experience where I'm, I'm on the phone talking to someone about a dance group that she's trying to set up in a, in a church hall in a village in, in Essex and, and putting the phone down and talking to a, a chief exec of a pharmaceutical company in the States about, um, <laughs> about you know, the latest kind of research program. And is, is that, are we stretching ourselves too thinly or actually is there something quite powerful about that, that when you are talking to the global, global pharmaceutical chief exec, you're bringing the, the, you know, that kind of community and the voice of the community the humanity. that's really kind of rooted in, in, in local church halls. Yeah, you, know, you, you talk about the pharmaceutical companies, and you know, it, it, I think it's important that they understand the impact that they have, you know, whether it's you know, uh, Pfizer pulling out or you know, whether it's you know, Cinemet uh, going on halt for a while and, and the impacts that that has when you can't have those brand name drugs and you have to depend on the generics that don't work for everybody. Uh, I don't yeah. know that they always understand the, the impact they have on the Parkinson's community because it's a business to them. So I think it's important that they, you have that perspective for them. Yeah, I think so. And I, you know, I remember when um, one of the, the drug companies, I can't remember the detail now, but they, they, they had kind of supply problems and we activated our networks and the, the, the medical director of that pharmaceutical company got, I think he said, he told me it was 450 emails on a Saturday and Sunday about that situation. And, and that's, that's really powerful, I think, when we can kind of mobilize people in, in that way. He hasn't forgotten that. He told me about it when he bumped into me a few years later. And, and that's, that's, Good. That's, that's a great model, I think, of the community coming together to really drive change. I see around the world the different organizations are collaborating more and more. Are you feeling that? 
Yeah, definitely. I think that's 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 really important that we do that. And I mean, a good, a good example. And I think one of the one of the issues that the the um, GDNF trial highlights is is actually the flawed methodology that we have around clinical trials. Um, clinical trials fail. Is it because the drugs fail, or is it because our trials are not fit for for purpose so one of the things that we've done is is to set up this initiative called the critical path for parkinson's um so we've brought together um foundations from around the world the fox foundation the parkinson's foundation are, are, are involved in this um 10 or 11 global pharmaceutical companies are involved as, as well. We've got um, an, an organization, the Critical Path Institute, based, based in Arizona, who are doing the work around all of this. And, and, and what this is doing is bringing everybody together, sharing data, um, drug company data, clinical trial data, the kind of data that, that um, researchers all around the world have following patients up over a number of years, putting that together and designing tools that can be used to shape the future of clinical trials and to work with the regulators to get that kind of approved. So individual companies don't have to go and get their own kind of trial design approved by the regulator and spend millions of pounds, dollars doing that. We can do that kind of once and for all on behalf of the whole industry. Um, and and, and in, in doing that, I think really um, facilitate the the the, the ongoing um, drug development in, in, in Parkinson's. You, uh, the Parkinson's Foundation is a collaborator with a virtual biotech project you guys announced last fall. Can you talk about yeah. that? Yeah, well, I, I, yes. And, you know, you, you've been talking a lot about the urgency within the, the, the kind of community and the importance of um, the voice of people with, with, with Parkinson's. And I guess for... for for us, like like a lot of um, medical research charities, you know, certainly in the UK and, and I think kind of globally, the model has been let's fund good quality academic research. And as long as they come up with great insights and discoveries, the, the system will pick that up and turn that into drugs that people will see in clinic. And I think it, it, it was a kind of recognition that that's not happening in in, in Parkinson's. The, the science is really exciting, and academics are coming up with really interesting insights. But the the biotech industry, the pharmaceutical industry, is becoming more risk averse when it comes to Parkinson's. Um, so there's a gap emerging. Really promising um, university discoveries that are not being picked up by by industry. So we thought that's an area that we could start to to fill you know that we we can bring in new skills into the charity so i brought in a new research director arthur roach and he's recruited a team of people who've all got industry experience and and what we'll do is we'll pick a number of projects um that that we can de-risk if you like we can invest in for um perhaps three or four years, take them to the next stage and then present them to pharmaceutical companies having done some of that, that kind of heavy lifting and make it easier for them to, 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 to pick it up and take it on to the next stage. So we've got something like seven projects now in our, our portfolio. Um, and I'm just really ex excited. I think this is a, a, a new way of, of, of doing things. We've got some... Um, interesting news coming out in a press release on on monday around a um 
um, one of the, the products in that portfolio, which is just getting a step closer to, to being a, a new new treatment. So, you know, I think that's, the, the, we talk about collaboration. I think it is foundations working together to find these new ways of, of developing drugs. And so it's great that the Parkinson's Foundation have, have been involved um, in working with us in, in this way. And, and, and we hope that will be a collaboration that, that develops over time. That's great. I, I, I like that. I, I read about that. And I was like, hey, that's exciting. It's, you know, it's it's thinking into the future. It's activating the, the science that's being done and it's helping ultimately the patient, which is great. Yeah. And, and it's, it's attractive actually to, to a lot of our supporters who are, who I think perhaps some of the more business minded supporters that we have who perhaps don't always see the value of, of just putting money into university research. But here they feel that they're supporting us to invest in projects and, and they've got really clear milestones and they're being delivered in a very business-like way. If, if they're not succeeding, we'll turn the tap off very, very quickly. We're not investing in bricks and mortar. We're using small lean companies just focused on individual um, kind of projects. And it's, it's, just a, it's just a very fast-moving, dynamic way of, of, of spinning lots of plates. Um, but I'm probably getting struggling with my metaphors now, but, you know, ensuring <laughs> that one of those plates keeps on spinning. Um, and, and, and it's the plate that we need in the end to deliver the new treatment. Do you think that your enthusiasm and your sense of urgency relates to the fact that you're a cancer survivor and you know what research can ultimately do? Um, no, I don't think that is true, actually. I think that, um, well, I suppose, it, I suppose, yeah, I mean, I do remember reflecting, you know, when I was diagnosed with early prostate cancer that... Um, you know, wasn't it amazing that that could be picked up early? Someone could say, we know what to do about it. And you could go and have surgery and, you know, effectively, you know, I'm cured of prostate cancer. Of course, um, I guess some people would say that's, that's, that's never the case. And you still have to be monitored and, 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 and all of that. But that's, that's really powerful, isn't it? And, and I guess that's a vision for, for, for what it could be like in, 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 in Parkinson's, that challenge of how do we identify it? early pre at the prodromal pre-symptomatic stage and how do we develop those new treatments that could stop parkinson's in its tracks that's the kind of holy grail i guess that we're we're we're, we're looking for and it is frustrating that in cancer there is so much more investment that's that's being made and we need to ensure that um yeah it's it's now parkinson's it's neurodegeneration's turn i think to mm -hmm. to, to benefit from from that investment well, uh, thank you for your time and for uh, all you're doing for the Parkinson's community. I really appreciate it. Yeah, no, thank you. And thanks for what you're doing, too. Um, it, it, we really are a global community. And I think um, podcasts like this just, just bring that to life, actually. Both Steve and Helen mentioned collaborating with the Michael J. Fox Foundation. Full disclosure, I am on the Michael J. Fox Foundation Patient Council. I host the Parkinson's IQ Plus U events across the United States. Our final chat today on this podcast takes place in Southern California, where I met up with Sohini Chowdhury during a PDIQ event in Anaheim. Sohini is the deputy CEO of MJFF, <laughs> Michael J. Fox Foundation. Right. While Q uh, Parkinson's Trust marks 15 years and Parkinson's UK marks 50 years, the Fox Foundation also hits a milestone in 2020. 
It is. It is. It's a little bit crazy to think that we've been around for 20 years. Well, I don't think anybody anticipated being around that long. No, it's sort of a um, a bittersweet sort of celebration in that I think we really expected and hoped that our doors would close before 20 years because we would meet our goal. And obviously, um, we've made a lot of strides. There are a lot of new therapies that have now made their way into patients' hands, and that's fantastic. And a lot of that has been supported by the Fox Foundation. But um, unfortunately, a lot still remains to be done. And so I think we're approaching these 20 years sort of as a let's celebrate what we've accomplished, but by no means does that mean that we need to stop working. In fact, we need to push even harder because we've seen that we can have an impact and we just need to accelerate that and work even harder to do what we need to do. It feels like, from my perspective, in talking to a bunch of different organizations uh, through the podcast, that there's more of an open sense of collaboration amongst the organizations. Do you feel that? Absolutely. I think we all have a shared mission in um, trying to do our, our utmost to support the community. And that support can come in a lot of different ways. And None of it is competitive because we each sort of have a different approach that we take, but together it provides a holistic, um, a holistic platform to, to engage with and support the community. Does that speed up the progress? I think so. I think when you have groups that are specializing in, um, you know, care centers and um, trying to make sure that the care centers are the best possible, or you have groups that are focused on advocacy, or you have groups focused on research, etc. It just allows the best to be done in those areas, and it sort of creates this symbiotic um, ecosystem where, again, where we have our respective expertise, we're kind of pushing those areas, and we're making sure that it benefits the community as a whole. Which of the research uh, projects that are underway that you're aware of most excite you? I'm really excited about a lot of the synuclein studies that are going on, um, partly because the scientific rationale is so strong. We know that alpha-synuclein, this protein that exists in all of us, but for some reason it clumps with Parkinson's patients, we know that it's the hallmark of the disease. And so the fact that we actually have a number of different therapies in clinical testing that are looking to target alpha-synuclein is incredibly exciting because it really gets to this root biological process that we know is part of the disease. Right. And so from my understanding, it's kind of like what we're seeing after the forest fire has burned is we're like, hey, there's alpha-synuclein there. We just don't know how it got there or why it's there or what it did. Exactly. We know that it's there. Did it cause the fire? Is it, be, did it, is it a consequence of the fire? Um, you know, is it sort of Maybe it's totally irrelevant to the fire, and there are two processes going on. We don't know, but what we do know is that when you do an autopsy on um, the brains of individuals who have had Parkinson's, we know that they have Lewy bodies, these clumping, what we call the clumping of alpha-synuclein. We know they have these clumps in their brains. And so the theory is, let's go after these clumps because they exist, and they don't exist in the brains of individuals who don't have Parkinson's disease. One billion dollars. It's quite a hallmark over 20 years of raising money for research, and yet we still don't have a cure, or we still, and we still don't know what causes Parkinson's. And it sounds like a lot of money, but compared to other diseases, it's really not. So how do we continue to build the urgency for Parkinson's? Yeah, a billion dollars is an, it's a, it's a, it's a mind-blowing number, and I think it's important to, to put that number 
um, sort of in in to think about it in the right way. When you think about drug development in general, um, the numbers that are often cited are that it takes anywhere between 12 and 15 years to get a drug moving through the development process and into patients' hands, and that it can cost upwards of a billion dollars, that entire process. So when you think about over 20 years that we've been able to, through the unbelievable um, generous commitment of the Parkinson's community, that we've been able to raise a billion dollars, it's extraordinary. But it also sort of puts it in perspective that it's not really that much, unfortunately, and this sounds terrible to say, it's not that much when you think about drug development and the costs of it. But I think what we've learned in these 20 years is how to be really smart about the money that we've raised. And we've been able to do enormous things with that money, everywhere from supporting a lot of these symptomatic, improved symptomatic treatments um, that are now on the market for patients, to really supporting a lot of these novel approaches that are looking to um, really slow or halt the disease progression, which is really getting at that goal of ours of a cure. So I think that a billion dollars is a lot. I wish that we did not have to be here at 20 years saying we've raised a billion dollars. I wish we could say we've, you know, in 20 years cured it. But I think we're really smart about the way we raise our money. And we now know how to make, we had to get the biggest bang out of every buck that we raise. And, and how important are the relationships with the pharmaceutical companies? I mean, uh, you have Acadia Pharmaceutical mm-hmm. here today uh, sponsoring uh, the Parkinson's IQ Plus U, Plus U event. Uh, how, what role do they play in, in, in the Michael J. Fox Foundation? Pharmaceutical companies are a really important player in drug development. And the way that we see it is that if you really want to be smart about getting therapies into patient hands, you have to work with everyone who's part of that process. And the biopharma sector is an important player. And so the way that we see it is we want to understand how do we get them to stay committed to Parkinson's research because it's a very um, complex disease. There are a lot of risks associated with investing in Parkinson's. So how do we get them to invest in Parkinson's, stay invested in Parkinson's, and increase their investment in Parkinson's? And one of the ways we do that are through events like this, where we sort of um, highlight um, you know, the, the, the research that's going on. We sort of um, make sure that the Parkinson's community has this this front row seat to understanding what is happening in the Parkinson's disease research and care ecosystem. And having these companies here to be able to um, speak with the with participants directly and be able to share that information so that every person who attends these events walks away with that knowledge to make whatever decision he or she may want to make with respect to their care or whatever action items, they, uh, um, calls to action they may want to take, that's really important. Why do you think there's such an adversarial relationship between big pharma and the patients? Well, I think rightfully so. You know, patients wonder, why does it take so long? Are they really pushing as as hard and fast as they could? Um, You know, are they really thinking about um, how I can get access to these drugs? And I think that you know, um, I think sometimes biopharma have not been the smartest about how they've communicated things. I think they're learning, and we've seen improvements over the decades. But I think that um, there's still a deep, um, perhaps, um, um, it's a little complex, I think, that perhaps not everyone understands what, what goes on to, into drug development efforts. On one hand, from the patient community, and may not fully understand 
why it actually does take so long and why safety matters so much and how that can take a long time um, in terms of testing it and making sure that it doesn't have, it's doing what it says it does and it doesn't have any unintended consequences. And from the biopharma side, I think that perhaps they have not realized until lately that patients are partners in this process and they should be treated as such and they should have that same amount of information and knowledge. And so I think we're moving in the right direction, but perhaps it could happen faster. And I think that's one of the things we're trying to do is make sure that we can get those communication streams going so that each side fully understands the interests and the, and the um, objectives of the other and that there's full transparency about what's going on. Yeah, you're really a bridge between the patient and the pharmaceutical companies, and, and, and you're helping to drive that process faster and cleaner and safer. That's what we're hoping to do, and I think that we've seen a lot of um, success in that area. I think we still have a ways to go, but um, certainly I think that's something that we um, feel is an important thing to happen, and we're really willing to do it. Thank you. Thank you very much. Sohini Chowdhury the Michael J. Fox Foundation, Steve Ford, Parkinson's UK, Helen Matthews, Cure Parkinson's Trust, Keepers of Hope, Difference Makers, Believers, Be Inspired. This is the award-winning podcast, When Life Gives You Parkinson's, a curious cast podcast written and produced by me, Larry Gifford. Our story editor is Dila Velazquez and sound designed by Rob Johnson. We also want to hear from you. You're not calling. I don't know what's wrong. You don't like me? You can record a voice message for us at speakpipe.com slash when life gives you Parkinson's. Go ahead. Speakpipe.com slash when life gives you Parkinson's. It's not going to bite you. Just call and say hello. I miss you. I haven't seen a human being in a long time with her soon. One of the programs Parkinson Canada offers is a confidential information and referral line. And so if you have any questions at all, don't hesitate to reach out to info at parkinson.ca or call toll-free 1-800-565-3000. Parkinson Canada colleagues are there for you. They're great listeners and can answer questions on a huge range of topics. So my thanks to Sohini Chowdhury of the Michael J. Fox Foundation, Steve Ford, Parkinson's UK, and Helen Matthews of the Cure Parkinson's Trust, and to you for listening. Thank you. Some of you are listening while you work out. I couldn't listen to me and work out at the same time. I got to be honest with you, but I'm glad it works for you. I also want to offer special thanks to our promotional partners, Spotlight YOPD. Gaynor Edwards is doing terrific work. Uh, it, this is the only organization in the world with a singular focus of raising awareness of young onset Parkinson's disease. You can find them at Spotlight yopd.org and in the u.s parkinson's iq plus u this is a free series of events from the michael j fox foundation to educate and empower people with parkinson's and their partners some of these events have been postponed due to covid19 but we're creating some online free events so go to michaeljfox.org slash pdiq to find out what's going on and to watch for rescheduled dates interested in learning more about parkinson's and connecting to the community I encourage you to save the date for the 6th World Parkinson Congress. You'll probably meet Sohini and Helen and Steve. They'll probably be there. It's June 7th to 10th in Barcelona, Spain in 2022. By then, we should be able to travel again. It's the only totally inclusive scientific conference that opens its doors to people with Parkinson's and families. We'll be there. Me, Rebecca, Henry, all of our friends. Come on, come join us. 
Learn more at WPC2022.org. Can you tell I'm getting a little slap happy being at home so much? <laughs> I miss people. Um, I want to thank you for listening. Uh, please take a moment to subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, CastBox, or wherever you listen to podcasts. While you're there, give the show a five-star rating. Come on, just do it already. We've gotten some great comments recently. Thank you for putting comments down. Uh, be sure to put your comments down about why you recommend listening to this pod. You can also engage us on social media. It's at Parkinson's Pod at Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Email me at parkinsonspod at curiouscast.ca. And if you want to Zoom, I'm doing a, a Tuesday Zoom. Uh, and I we get like five or six people, random people from around the world. Uh, if you're interested, it's at 9 a.m. Pacific time. Just email me or reach out on social media and say, I'd like to be involved, and we'll schedule you in one week because uh, we rotate people through. So uh, we're Zooming on Tuesdays at 9 a.m. Pacific time. All right. Keep positive. Keep exercising. Keep listening. We'll talk to you next time. Hi, it's Shauna, and I might be a bad parent because my kids think french fries are vegetables. Hey, it's Ryan, and I might be a bad parent because I went out for wings when my wife was in the hospital after giving birth. Johnny here. I might be a bad parent because in my house, the tooth fairy gives pocket change. But we're not alone. Len emailed us and said his six-year-old daughter's Tarzan moment going from love seat to lazy boy by curtains made him more proud than any dance <laughs> recital. And Andy left his two-year-old at the rink. All right, guys, I'm sure we're not alone, like Andy's kid. For stories and confessions like this, make sure you check out our podcast. It's called Bad Parents, and it's available wherever you get your podcasts. I left a glove at the rink.